Well, we started this study way back around December, and we were just uh, getting started. I, I went over, took a couple lessons on some study guides, some study hints, and some things to look for, and that was a long time ago, and I'm not going to go back over all of that again. Uh, I'm just going to highlight some of the things to refresh your mind, and then uh, we'll get into the, to the meat of the, of the book. Um, one of the things that I touched on, I, I said that when we look at the book of Judges, we're dealing with uh, God trying to take his people and separate them from the world as far as um, the gods of this world. And in particular, uh, the gods of Baal and Asheroth. Um, and we talked about how Baal worship um, has come into our society in the form of secular humanism. But to again uh, give you an idea that there's nothing new under the sun, I'd like to read a couple of quotes about Baal and Asheroth from uh, a pastor Khan who was writing about um, uh, this topic. He said, Baal represented the nations turning away from God and into the physical, the material, the carnal, and the essential, sensual. It was this that opened the door of the entrance to Ashroth, or sometimes she's known as Istar, and with it unbridled sexuality, licentiousness, and decadence. The worship of Baal had elements of all these things, but Ashroth was their incarnation, the one God ushered in the other, and the one spirit the next. The God of the apostasy ushered in the goddess of sexual licentiousness and debauchery. And he goes on to say, particularly about Ashroth, it was not her nature to accept reality as it was, it was her nature to bend it, to transform it, conform it to her will and desire. If her will was to be a woman, she would be a woman. But if it was to be a man, she would become a man. She was the goddess of transmutation and metamorphosis. Her nature was to alter nature, and most specifically the nature of male and female, man and woman. An ancient Sumerian hymn reveals her power this way. Turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man to change one into the other. She had the ability to turn male into female and female into male, to blur and bend and merge and invert the two. Does that sound anything like what's going on in our society today? Transgender? goes back, there's nothing new under the sun. This was the type of thing that God was warning his people against even back uh, in the times of the Canaanites. And this is a battle that we are, that God's people are still facing and battling today. So where there's an absence of God's word, people will believe anything and everything, as we see here. So we talked a little bit about humanism and, uh, and the effect on our culture and society. 
coming from this Baal worship. Um, in fact, um, was it last year? There was a statue unveiled in New York City of the god of Moloch, the one that they sacrificed their children to. Stone image was erected in New York City. <clears throat> and then I went over some study helps. Um, the book of Judges has many symbolic images that not only talk about what's happening to the people as they lived back then and their lives and their times, but it also pictures the gospel and other biblical truths. So as we study the book, look for these images that reveal God's gospel and his word to us through the images and writing of the book of Judges. It kind of has a twofold meaning. So look for these types and foreshadows uh, that are written within the, the book. And then I said that the Bible is based on a mega theme that we see starting in Genesis and going to Revelation. And that is creation, the fall, decline, judgment, and recreation. And we're going to see that on a smaller scale in the book of Judges. So watch for those elements as we look uh, at this book. I sometimes liken it to a roller coaster ride with a series of spiritual ups and downs. And the book of Judges is also a fulfillment of prophecy. God working out his plan through imperfect people. Deuteronomy 31.16 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. God already knew that there was going to be this difficulty with his people and these foreign gods. But he didn't relieve them of the responsibility to obey his law, obey his commands, to respect the covenant. Man was still responsible for those actions. But probably the most important theme I want you to watch for as we go through this is um, pay attention to the God-man relationships. God commands and makes a, or makes a promise. Man responds to that command or promise by obedience or uh, disobedience. Um, and God evaluates man's response by either blessing him or punishing him. You're going to see this repeated continuously. So for the first chapter here in Judges, um, there's a command by God, there's a response by man, and then there's going to be an evaluation of uh, God on man and his judgments, his decisions. So God's command is to conquer Canaan. And then there's a whole series of human responses in uh, the first chapter of Judges. And in chapter 2, in verse 1 through 5, we see the evaluation of the Lord based on man's response to his commands. And so that kind of gives you an overview of, of uh, what the important highlights of things I want you to keep in mind. So perhaps I'm about to go over some things that sound familiar because I'm going to 
recap some of the things that we just began to start uh, way back in December, and then we're going to plunge forward into new material in the chapter uh, of Judges. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 1 and 2 to start with. Verse 1, And it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first up against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So we see as Judges opens up here, God has already made his command to Israel. The command was to go in and conquer Canaan. And Judges is basically just a continuation of the book of Joshua. (coughs) And if you've been following Pastor Walden on Wednesday night uh, at the prayer meeting, he's been given a a, a uh, pre-introduction for me going through Joshua building up towards Judges now that we're here Sunday morning. So now at the beginning of the book, the people are inquired as to which tribe should go and lead the war against the Canaanites. And the Lord replied that Judah should go up first, for I have given the land into his hands. Now this procedure, this um, exercise of inquiring of the Lord is laid out in Numbers 27, 18 through 21. The people were to consult the high priest, and the high priest wore the ephod, the breastplate, and on the breastplate were uh, stones representing, 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And some biblical scholars Uh, think that perhaps God communicated through the ephod by causing a particular jewel to glow or maybe produce heat as some kind of a significance to the question of what tribe should do this or what tribe should do that. And so Numbers 27-21 forbid Israel to go into battle without consulting the ephod first. So this was laid down to them back in Numbers, and so here they're following God's command by inquiring who should go first into this battle. And some people will raise the question at this time, was it right for God to command a total destruction of the Canaanites? And my simple answer to that would be yes. Um, Because the cup of wrath of the Canaanites was was by that time filled up. Now remember that God had told Abram that the Israelites would go into captivity into Egypt for 400 years. And the reason for that was is because the Canaanites had not yet been sinful enough to be judged. But after 400 years, God would judge them with the people of Israel going into that land. And so simply to say that, you know, God commanded them to do that should be significant. But 
Keep in mind, this is not the first time that God has dealt with an evil civilization. Noah preached for 120 years without much response, and God wiped out that evil civilization uh, through the flood. So God is dealing with sin uh, in this manner as well. God's command was that the Canaanites should be uh, completely driven out or slaughtered one way or the other, completely removed from the land. Turn over to Exodus, Exodus chapter 23, Exodus 23 and verses 27 through 33. Exodus 23, 27 through 33. And I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from you. I will not drive them out from you in a single year so that the land will not become desolate and the animals of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out from you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will set your boundaries from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates River. For I will hand over the inhabitants of the land to you and you will drive them out from you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land Otherwise, they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it is certain to be a snare to you. And we see this expanded upon in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. But um, if you want to look that up later on. So we know that the initial conquest of this land that God had promised to the Israelites that Joshua had pretty much uh, fought the fight. Um, and now, uh, if you, again, were with us on Wednesday night, Pastor was talking about what to do with the end of Joshua, where they were dividing the land up among the different tribes. And so, in effect, what we have here in Judges is an extended mopping up operation. Uh, Joshua has gone in and has done the initial uh, uh, war, and now uh, the tribes are to go in, take possession of the land that God has given them, and then finish the job dealing with the Canaanites, the Hivites, and uh, the other people living in that area. So the book of Judges opens up. We have the interaction between God and man. God's command and promise was destroy the Canaanites, take the land completely, and I'll be with you to protect you and to ensure your success. So the question now comes up, how will Israel respond to the word from God? Well, predictably, God says that the royal tribe of Judah should go up first. Now, this royal tribe of Judah is the tribe that David will come from and later Jesus will come from, and they are to lead the fight uh, in this land. 
So the first thing we're going to take a look at is the activities of Judah after the death of Joshua. So verse 3 of Judges chapter 1, you can turn back there. Judges chapter 1, verse 3. Come up with me into my lot, he's talking to Simeon here, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you unto your lot. Simeon goes along with Judah, and there's a reason for this. Back in Genesis chapter 34, Simeon and Levi uh, had been cursed by their father, Jacob, because of their sins of lying and stealing and murder with regard to bringing justice to their sister who had been violated. The two tribes were to be scattered throughout the land and not have their own special tribal territory. In the case of the Levites, uh, this curse turned out to be a blessing for them because they became the priests or the guardians of Israel. And they were able to settle in the Levitical cities. We see that in Deuteronomy 33. But up to this point, there had been no salvation or way of redemption for Simeon. But by aligning and, and, and going with his brother uh, Judah, um, the tribes together, um, Simeon would find salvation in this manner. The blessing that came to the tribe of Judah as, a well, as for following God's command was also falling with Simeon as well. And we see this in Joshua 19, 1 through 9, where it says that Simeon's land was taken out of Judah's territory. So later in history, Simeon will be part of the southern kingdom of Judah, and thus will be spared the Assyrian captivity. Okay, back to Judges 1 and verse 4. And Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Prezizites into their hands and smote 10,000 men of Bezak. And they found Adonai Bezak in Bezak and fought against him. And they smote the Canaanites and the Perizzites and Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught, caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather up scraps from under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him back to Jerusalem where he would die there. So we see the first response of man under God's command. Uh, Judah and Simeon, their first victory uh, was at Adonai Bezak. The 
meaning of the word Adonai is not, well, is my Lord with a small l. The word does not mean God, nor does it mean man. How it is used in the passage and how it's used in the context will reveal to whom the word refers to. So we, we don't want to get confused with the meaning and the interpretation. Again, the meaning of Adonai is my Lord. The interpretation must be taken from the context, and the context will determine whether it's used in reference to God or whether it's used in reference to man. So in this context, Adonai is referred to a man who is the Lord over a certain territory called Bezek. Now it is thought that the term Bezek means lightning flash or sunrise. Now if that's true, then Adonai Bezek was most likely looked upon as a supreme godlike figure, a picture of a satanic type of ruler of his age, much like the pharaohs of Egypt were thought to be the descendants of the sun god Ra. Now, I'll be honest with you, I, I have not spent a whole lot of time studying much about the symbolic nature and meaning of various numbers found in the Bible. I do know that symbolism and even hyperbole are techniques used by some of the writers, divinely inspired writers of both the Old and New Testament, and the books of Daniel and Revelation come to mind. But some biblical scholars have declared that certain numbers represent different ideas or concepts. And since I know very little about it myself, I cannot be dogmatic as to the validity of their interpretations. But some commentators would read these verses and say that Adonai Bezek ruled over 70 kings. They believe that the number 70 is used in parts of scripture to represent or symbolize the total number of nations, the total number of nations in the world. And starting with Genesis chapter 10 and the 70 nations listed there. Adonai Bezak is thus represented as a type of a world leader, similar to the leader portrayed as a beast in Daniel and in Revelation. In connection with this, it is stated that 10,000 men were slain. This number is probably rounded off. And again, I don't want to read more into the meaning of the number and its symbol significance than it deserves. But others would say that the number 10 is symbolizing totality in Scripture. And then 10,000 would then mean a total or a complete defeat, or a thorough liquidation of all the forces of Adonai Bezak. I'll let you explore those ideas if you wish. I, I'm not uh, an authority. I haven't taken the time to study them. Um, but uh, they're out there for your consideration. 
We also see in these verses perfect retribution is measured out. Measured out against the Adonai Bezak. And that principle uh, of um, retribution or, or uh, punishment is the eye for an eye um, principle found in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24. Just as he had done to others, so it was done to him. Adonai Bezek is forced to confess to the justice of this principle or this punishment. He says, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And we too will have to acknowledge the justice of God on the last day when Jesus Christ judges the nations of the world. And what his judgment will be will be true and, uh, and correct. Some readers might see this as an act of unwarranted cruelty on Judah's part. However, the Bible teaches it in principle, like I said, in Exodus and Leviticus. And the text says that it was an act of divine justice. God has done this to me. But when you think about it, it, the punishment idea of an eye for an eye is really an advancement at this point in time in human civilization. Up to this time, instituting punishment was totally arbitrary. Uh, There was a lack of consistency in the administration of punishment. With this concept, the punishment was to fit the crime and not to exceed beyond what was deserved. And it was given as a tool for judges. This was not designed for personal revenge. And Pastor Wallen has gone over that a few weeks ago in our study of Deuteronomy. So we may find this to be cruel and unusual, but you and I are living at the other extreme of the spectrum where criminals are released back into society without any bail. And many people with questionable character know that they can steal up to $1,000 worth of merchandise and not be arrested for any crime. And now we have prosecutors handing out lists of crimes that they will not charge or will not prosecute, telling the people it's no big deal. So... We have one extreme, eye for an eye, and now we're living in the other extreme uh, in our culture today. So while Adonai Bezek recognized the justice of the punishment, this was also the first sign of Israel's disobedience. Remember, we're looking at the men's response to God's command. Foreign kings were to be captured and executed, not humiliated by mutilating them. And so the question might come up, why chop off thumbs and big toes? Any answers to that? All right, you you can't 
you can't handle a sword or a spear uh, if they do get away. So that's hard to lead people into battle. Humiliating them. Notice he said that they, they were under the table picking up scraps. So it probably wasn't literally 70 people under his table. But the idea was is that is humiliation. Have you ever tried to pick up something to adjust your fingers? It's, it's a very difficult, humiliating uh, activity. So, um, and it would be very difficult to walk long distances without a toad, large big toad as well. Um, so it was these acts of humility and, uh, and mutilation. So in order to symbolize the dominion of the 70 kings, Adonai had crippled their hands and their feet. And again, these warriors could no longer go into battle uh, with the swords or the spears. We see it was the Lord who gave the victory, according to verse 4, over Adonai Bezak. And thus it was for the Lord's city that Adonai Bezek was brought to live out the rest of his life. And this brings us to a consideration of the importance of Jerusalem. So back in Judges 1, verse 8. And the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Jerusalem was already known to the people of Israel because Melchizedek was both the king and the priest of Jerusalem back in Genesis 14. And Abram had given tithes to him in Jerusalem as a um, uh, service to the king and, and, and acknowledge the priesthood. So uh, they were uh, aware of the importance of Jerusalem as being the home of the king. And therefore, Judah would easily assume from this that God intended them to take Jerusalem and make it the capital of Israel. And thus the text moves immediately to the description of the sack of Jerusalem. Note that it is after the defeat of the world ruler, Adonai Bezek, that the uh, God builds his new city upon the old. Uh, and this is a pattern that we've seen periodically through Scripture. But probably the most important one is in the book of Revelation, where the new, uh, the, the new Jerusalem is built after the destruction of the dragon. And it's built uh, uh, on the ashes of the old. So for symbolic reasons, they brought Adonai Bezek, defeated by God, to God's city in order that he might die there. Jerusalem was initially captured by Judah, even though it was located in the territory belonging to Benjamin. Later on, Jerusalem would fall back into the hands of the Jebusites, and it would be David the royal person from the clan of J tribe of Judah, 
who would finally conquer and hold Jerusalem in 2 Samuel. The city was set on fire. Why do you suppose that was? Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yep. But if it was going to be God's royal city, what do, what do, you, what do you suppose? Purification. Yeah, yeah. It was a, if it was going to be God's holy city, it was a, like a sense of a burnt offering for sin. They were destroying this, burning it because of the sinful people that inhabit it. You know, before it becomes a royal city of God's use, it had to be purified. And fire is the symbol of God's wrath and purification. <clears throat> Verse 9. And afterwards the son of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, living in the hill country and in the south country and in the lowland. Verse 10, so Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kirakith Arbra. And they struck, forgive me here, but uh, my tongue gets twisted, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. I (coughs) believe... And so we have details of, of uh, them going against Canaanites in these very various places, including the city of Hebron. So I think verse 9 uh, was written to impress us upon Judah's initial faithfulness. This was their response to God's command. They fought the Canaanites wherever they found them. They fought them in the hill country, they fought them in the south country, and they fought them in the lowlands. They were not entirely successful, and that would only appear later in the book. But for right now, Scripture wants to show us that they started out well and faithful, following God's orders. How much is that like us? Do we start off well? And eventually, like the people of Israel, kind of fade off? Uh, in following God's commands and his rules and his laws. Verse 10 shows three aspects of the conquest. First of all, Hebron was a sanctuary city. Abram had settled there, and it had been a place of sanctuary for him while he lived there. And later on, he left Hebron to rescue Lot, and he brought Lot back to Hebron as a place of sanctuary. And the Israelites, accordingly, were told to make Hebron one of the cities of refuge in Joshua chapter 20. So to conquer Hebron was to establish a sanctuary, a place of refuge in the land. The second aspect here is the earlier name of Hebron was Kerakath Abra. 
Kerareth means city. Araba means four. And so this could mean the four cities. It might indicate that Hebron was kind of like a metropolis, like uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, or if you talk about Detroit, you talk about Macomb, Oakland, and Monroe County. You know, it's a, a large area. So in effect, when they would conquer Hebron, they would, were overtaking four towns. Arbra, however, is also the personal name of a man who produced the race of giants known as Anakim. We find that in Joshua chapter 14. Arba is called the greatest man among the Anakim. And in Joshua 15, 13, he is called the father of Anak. So Kerakath Arba could also mean the city of Arba. I don't know about you, but I enjoy puns. And sometimes there are puns in the Bible if you look for them. Um, Sometimes they're called dad jokes. My son likes to give them to me. So if Hebron were a metropolis, then the second aspect of the conquest shown is that in this verse that Judah was taking a large, large or giant portion of this. So there's kind of a pun taking place here. There's a giant portion of the cities um, that is being conquered. Um, And that kind of ties in with the Anakim and the the giants that were living there. The third aspect then is the destruction of the giants. The three tribes that I mentioned, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, were descendants of Araba and where giants lived, according to Numbers 13. It was there that these tribes that had frightened the Israelites when they came there the first time and uh, when they came out of Egypt. And so that entire generation was prevented from entering the promised land. So much fear stops Judah now. I mean, no such fear stops Judah now. However, a simple application could be made. The association of giants with Hebron tells us that we want to have a sanctuary, then we need to deal with the giants. God gives us no refuge to those who do not war against sin. Well, I'm going to stop it here before we get into verse 11 uh, and the great love story. Um, But um, it gives us an introduction into the book. Um, Any comments or thoughts about some of the material we've covered? Okay. Oh, yeah.
That's why I've never played around a lot with them or pursued that, but some people have. There's some evil that can evolve into astrology, number, numerology, and things like that. You know? Anything else? Okay. Brother Ken, would you close this in prayer then? Amen.